These prime integer numbers are always important. That means February the 19th is going to be a special day. Can't beat it. All right. Let's turn to uh, Job. What? Well, of course I'm signed up for the Amen's retreat. Are you signed up, Kellen, for the Amen retreat? All right, good. Hey, are you guys signed up for the Amen retreat? All right, all right. If you're not, you're a knucklehead. Plan to come. Get yourself signed up. Bring your golf clubs, your Bible, your brain, and not your wife, please. All right. Job chapter 28. This is a very interesting chapter. And I'll tell you why. It's quite different from what has preceded it and what follows it. As a matter of fact, you'll notice in the NIV at the beginning of chapter 28, this is on page 783, at the beginning of chapter 28 are quotation marks where it says, there is a mine for silver. That would suggest that this is Job speaking because you notice back over on the opposite page, chapter 27, and Job continued his discourse, which he had begun in chapter 26 on the previous page. So the NIV is assuming that Job is speaking here. And then if you turn the page, you'll notice on chapter 29, Job continues his discourse. So Job's obviously speaking in chapter 29, and obviously we think 30 and 31, up until we get to this new character, Elihu. However, as you're going to see in Job 28, the language and perspective is quite different from anything Job has said in chapters 3 through 27. And most scholars would disagree with the NIV. They would say, this can't be Job speaking. Uh, It doesn't sound like anything Job's been saying in his entire argument with his three friends, nor does it sound like Job when you get to chapter 28, I'm sorry, to chapter 29 through 31. And I tend to sympathize with those scholars and think, This probably is more like in a Greek play when the chorus has something to say or something to sing. It's almost like the narrator is kind of giving us a divine perspective on what's happening with the actors. And and I would tend to say that's what's going on here because this is a moment, uh, we call it out of despair arises a clue. And out of the despair of these two champion fighters, On the one hand, three friends. On the other hand, Job. And they both just almost completely exhausted themselves. It's like, you remember the the thriller in Manila (laughs) with Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier? I mean, one of the greatest fights ever. And both those men were just, I mean, they were just amazed that either of them survived. They were just completely spent at the end of that fight. And that's basically what what we went through last week. You have Job, the champion, defending himself against three all-star theologians, friends, who are using conventional proverbial wisdom to try to explain what happened to Job. And Job is trying to explain to them that proverbial wisdom doesn't work in his case. And he's not able to do it very well. 
but they end up in a draw, <laughs> both completely exhausted. And I think what's happening here in chapter 28 is that we're hearing a voice from the outside that has a higher elevation that's speaking about the matter. And then we'll go back into the fray next week when Job takes on this new friend, Elihu. Uh, so I think that's really what's happening in chapter 28. It's, it's one of those jewels that are given to us right in the middle of this fray to teach us something very important uh, about wisdom. Neither, uh, uh, and, and neither of these folks, either Job or his three friends, seem to be coming upon it <laughs> uh, up until now. So chapter 28, in some ways, it seems to me is a is a narrative uh, that is predicting in some way what's going to happen when we get to the voice of God here in just a few chapters. So it's sort of preparing us for the thundering presence of, of the Lord himself who will bring clarity to this whole matter. So it's just a little, uh, it's a little prophetic uh, insert into the dialogue. But it's a very, very important one, as we shall see. Let's look then at chapter 28. We'll read it through. There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to the darkness. He searches the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from where people dwell, he cuts a shaft in places forgotten by the foot of man. Far from men, he dangles and sways. The earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. Sapphires come from its rocks, and its dust contains nuggets of gold. No bird of prey knows that hidden path. No falcon's eye has seen it. Proud beasts do not set foot on it, and no lion prowls there. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock, and he lays bare the roots of the mountains. He tunnels through the rock. His eyes see all its treasures. He searches the sources of the rivers and brings hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me. The sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed in silver. It cannot be bought with the gold of Ophir, with precious onyx or sapphires. Neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. Coral and jasper are not worth, worthy of mention. The price of wisdom is beyond rubies. The topaz of Cush cannot compare with it. It cannot be bought with pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and He alone knows where it dwells. For He views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when He made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, 
Then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to man, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Okay, you, uh, just in terms of the structure of this poem, uh, if you'll look at verses 12 and 20, you'll see a similar, a similar statement. Where then does wisdom come from? You, you see that repeated. That suggests to us that those are the beginnings. That's a repeated refrain, and those are the beginnings, beginnings of new stanzas. So what we really have, just in the form as well as the content of this chapter, are three stanzas, and that's what we're going to look at because they hold for us three uh, uh, separate but related messages. Now let's look then at verse, verses 1 through 11, and here's what we discover. Man can do amazing things. The narrator here of Job is saying, hey, men are amazing people, amazing creatures. They do amazing things. For example, in verses 1 through 3, men are indefatigable explorers. He says he searches the farthest reaches, farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. And what the writer here is talking about are the mines that are found in the ancient Near East. They're found in some places that no one would ever go. You wonder, where did they ever find this ore? These men had surveyed and explored in the wildest, most offbeat places to find this ore. And he's saying men are incredible explorers. I mean, all you have to do is just think about Christopher Columbus and what was involved in that journey uh, over to this part of the world, or Lewis and Clark. If you've read uh, about their explorations, you're just amazed at the ingenuity as well as the curiosity of, of men. Or in the Christian missionary world, if you think about David Livingston, uh, perhaps the greatest missionary ever in the English language, and this man was a scientist and an explorer and a, a, a slave trade um, uh, uh, opponent in a big way, as well as a, a preacher. And uh, Livingston charted uh, 11 million square miles of Africa that had previously been uncharted. When Stanley went out to find him, Stanley being a newspaper reporter from, from New York, you know, of course he found Livingston and after all the search, found him in the heart of Africa. Remember what he said? Mr. Livingston, I presume. <laughs> Correct. Uh, and uh, Stanley went out to find him because of his incredible scientific uh, findings. He was the rage of the world. Uh, and just a, a phenomenal uh, explorer. And certainly in our own day, with men uh, flying to the moon, uh, we're incredible explorers. And the writer here is saying, men do incredible things. They're indefatigable explorers. If there's something to be found out, they want to find it out. And, and look at some of the scientific explorations of our day. Uh, with some of the, you know, we, we heard in the news last week, they think they're coming up with a cure for the common cold. And that, that comes from uh, decades and even centuries of research that have led us to the ability to, to uh, look at our DNA and, uh, and what affects viruses and how this, our whole system works at the smallest scale. It's just absolutely remarkable what men are able to do. And the writer here is saying, absolutely, men are amazing. They're indefatigable explorers. And then you get to verses 4 through 8, and he says, we're unrivaled engineers. 
He says once these people find where the ore is, uh, they cut a shaft, and then men will dangle and sway in verse 4. Uh, that is, they'll, they'll go to unbelievable extents to get the ore out of the mine. And uh, he says, the earth from which food comes is transformed below as by fire. You know, we're used to just seeing the earth on the surface and the food that comes from the harvest, but there are things going on underneath it where men are hanging by ropes and uh, uh, engineering unbelievable methods uh, to pull the uh, metal out of the earth. And I'm thinking about some of the engineering feats, or at least the results of engineering feats, that I've seen, you know, if, you, if you've seen the Colosseum in Rome, you're just amazed that so many centuries ago they were able to construct something that was so beautiful and so useful and so enduring. It's amazing. Or if you go to the Forbidden City in Beijing and you look at these slabs of marble uh, that, that have been transported for hundreds of miles, you say, how in the world did they do that? You can read and find out, but it's amazing trick that they used, that they engineered to get those slabs of rock there that were hundreds and even thousands of tons. Or if you, if you go to Jerusalem and you go down underneath the, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, and you look at these huge stones that are as big as this stage, this whole thing, and you say, how did they ever get those stones over here? Well, you need to read about that and find out what they engineered before we had modern cranes. Uh, and modern transportation, how in the world did they do that? And, of course, we know when they constructed the temple, they weren't supposed to be chiseling and making noise at the temple because it was sacred ground. So they had to engineer everything before they got it there. I mean, it's absolutely remarkable. And, of course, I suppose we, we even in our own uh, society, we could say, look at the Empire State Building and say, how did they get that up in one year? The whole thing was done in one year. Uh, or probably the most impressive of all is you go to the pyramids and of course you realize that the, the outer exterior of the pyramid is stripped off uh, but you look at this amazing feat of these pyramids over years and years and years uh, and you can hardly believe the ingenuity in the engineering ability of ancient man and that's, that's all the, the narrator is saying here is that, that even in his day or maybe especially in his day before all the equipment was available Men are in incredible engineers, not only explorers, but engineers. And so the, the narrator is saying, look, our, our, our inability to get the wisdom we need for any given circumstance is not because we're not curious enough. It's not because we're not uh, innovative enough. It's not because uh, we're, we're, we're not incredible engineers and explorers. And furthermore, it's not because we're not working hard enough. Look at verses 9 through 11. We're innovative workers. Man's hand assaults the flinty rock and lays bare the roots of the mountains. Man with his own hands is going to take down that mountain. <laughs> it's just amazing. And, uh, of course, every time the Olympic season rolls around or if you go to professional athletic events and you look at some of these trained athletes and you just can't believe what they can do, uh, it's absolutely remarkable the work that man will put in uh, to the things that are on his heart. So the first thing that's being said here about wisdom is, look, uh, our, our limitations uh, are not for lack of effort, <laughs> not, for, not for lack of using uh, what God has given us in some sense. Man can do amazing things. But if you turn then to verses 12 through 19, 
you see that man cannot attain wisdom on his own. Man cannot attain wisdom on his own. First of all, verses 12 through 14, you see that he can't find it. <laughs> Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? Man does not comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. So, gentlemen, as smart as you are, as hardworking as you are, as curious as you are, you ain't going to find it with all of your skill and all of your intelligence. And we know this just uh, I don't know how many of you have studied philosophy. I haven't studied it formally, only informally. But uh, And I'm, I, I enjoy philosophy. Uh, and philosophy just simply means love of wisdom. Okay? Philosophy. Sophia is wisdom. And phileo is love, brotherly love. So it's love for wisdom. And But you wouldn't know it, would you? <laughs> I mean, philosophers know how to ask all the questions. And they don't give you any of the answers. They just wander all around and they divide every issue into all of its individual parts and some things you've never heard of. You never knew things could be divided, but philosophers can divide them. Yeah, but you've got to think about this and you've got to think about that. And they'll just take you all the way around the mulberry bush and you come right back where you started. <laughs> and you really don't necessarily have answers for life. They ask the questions, but they rarely give you the answers. You always need to study theology at the same time you're studying philosophy. Uh, theology at least attempts to give you answers. But it does raise the questions. But when you finish with all of your philosophy, you're going to come back and say, but I still don't know how to rear a family. <laughs> you know, philosophy didn't help me do that. Still don't know necessarily how to run my business. Still don't know how to be a Sunday school teacher or an elder in the church. So you can't find it through the human love for wisdom. You're not going to get real wisdom just from other men or from yourself. You can't find it. And look at verses 15 through 19. If you happen to be a wealthy person, you might think you have a leg up, but the writer says, nope, can't buy it either. It cannot be bought with the finest gold. You can't pay for it. You can't buy enough books or enough software uh, to inform yourself. And you can't live long enough and have enough experiences. Uh, neither gold nor crystal can compare with it, nor can it be had for jewels of gold. So he's basically saying, look, as hard as you may try, even with your great skill and as much money as you may have, even in the wealthiest culture in the history of the world, which is the one that we live in in, in the United States in the 21st century, uh, even in bad economic times, the wealthiest nation in the history of the world, you cannot buy it. You don't have enough to buy it with. So you can't get it through your human ingenuity and initiative. So let's look at verses uh, 20 through 28. Hopefully we're going to get some answers here. He asks again, where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? And here's what he's showing us. God alone gives wisdom. God understands the way to it. And he alone knows where it dwells. So what you have in this story with Job and his friends, you have four champions going at it. Three against one. And the three are using everything we learned in the Proverbs to try to explain what happened to Job. 
And Job's trying to use everything in his personal experience to try to defend himself because he knows he didn't do anything different than he's been doing for years. And this came out of nowhere. So he's, he's trying to explain just from his own experience in life to defend himself. And these guys exhaust the abilities of men to figure this thing out and why Job is suffering as he is. And what we're told here is to remember what happened in Job 1 and 2. There was a divine court where God had a conversation with Satan and God ordered everything that's happening. And you don't understand things and you'll never be able to have explanations for things and you'll never be able to get your mind around it. You'll never get straight on this until you realize there's a sovereign divine court where God decrees whatsoever comes to pass for his own glory. And until your mind opens up to that and taps into that, you do not have wisdom and you can't get it with all of your money and all of your brilliance. You're not going to have it, he says. It only can be found with the Lord. Now, what kind of implication does this have? First of all, in verses 20 through 22, see that he says here, it is hidden from everyone else. What's being shown here is that in, for some reason, uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, you might mark that verse. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, uh, the secret things are, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. Here's a secret thing that was shown us in Job chapter 1. wasn't shown Job. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Or you may remember, we didn't actually study this per se in Proverbs, but there is a very encouraging verse along these lines in Proverbs 25, verse 2, that goes like this. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search out a matter is the glory of kings. So it's our glory to search it out. But it is the glory of God to conceal a matter. Why? Because in His glory, many of His counsels are hidden to us because He is lofty and high and lifted up. So we just simply acknowledge that, that all of the facts about reality are hidden from the eyes of every living thing. God doesn't make known everything that He's done or everything that he's thinking. And what implication does this have for us? Well, what it means is that when you come to wisdom, you're coming, you come to a place in life where you really need direction and you need understanding. You certainly search out his word. You search out God's creation through science, through reading, through study. Uh, certainly you take all these things in. But ultimately there's another discipline that has to enter your life if you're to be a man of wisdom, and that is the discipline of prayer. Leave your finger in Job chapter 28 and turn with me over to James. Uh, you'll find this on page uh, 2006, but let's turn to 2010. And let me remind you of what James says about, you know, about wisdom. James has a lot to say about wisdom. But notice that he talks about two types of wisdom. It's the wisdom of philosophy, the wisdom of men, the wisdom of this world. And then he speaks about a, another kind of wisdom. He calls wisdom that comes from heaven. But on 2010, this is James 3, 13. 
Uh, look how James puts it. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life. Okay? If you're wise, it will show by your good life, that is, deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. So the wisdom that you call wisdom that puffs you up and makes you think you're smarter or better than somebody else is not the wisdom from heaven. That's wisdom from the evil one himself. There's another kind of wisdom. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. So you'll notice that the peace that comes down from above has a moral purity to it and has a relational kindness to it. So it affects our moral lives as well as our relational lives. That's the wisdom that comes from God. Now, how do you get this wisdom? Now turn back to page 2006, James 1. And look at verse 5. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. There you have it. If any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. In other words, when you ask, you must ask with the intention of honoring and glorifying God. You're simply asking him to honor him. Ask with the right motive. And it says in the Bible, here's a promise, he'll give it to you. Now, of course, the classic example is Solomon himself, isn't it? Solomon, who is the wisest man on the face of the earth, the queen of Sheba, and we're told not just the queen of Sheba, but royalty from all over the Near East made their way to Jerusalem. They wanted simply to sit in the court of Solomon and listen to this man's wisdom. They wanted to ask him questions and hear his response to their questions. They just delighted themselves. This man had something they didn't have. What was it? You remember how it all began when Solomon was anointed king. He simply went into the presence of the Lord and said, Lord, I'm like a little kid. I don't know how to go in. I don't know how to go out. I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to rule your people. Please give me wisdom. So before he prayed for riches or before he prayed for dominance over a great part of the world, he just simply prayed for divine wisdom. And the Lord did what he promises in James 1, 5 he'll do. He gave Solomon wisdom, wisdom out of his ears. He gave Solomon wisdom overflowing his whole life. It was unbelievable how much wisdom he gave Solomon just because he asked. And what I find in my own life is I, I'm faced with a problem, and I, you know, I, my undergraduate degree is in engineering, so I, I engineer it. You know, I diagnose everything, and I get everything all figured out, and and. I logically lay it out before me, 
And then I tried different scenarios. You know how you do this in decision making. You put different scenarios on this problem. And then you try to run out what would this scenario look like and what would this scenario look like and what, the, what would that scenario look like. And sometimes I rack my brains. And then, I, then uh, if I can't figure it out right there, if it's not an easy problem, I'll call one of you guys and say, you know, you've got some expertise in this area. I've seen you do this before. I'd, I'd really like for you to help me with this. And, you know, what would you say about this? And so I collect all the advice that I can get from people. Now, all this is biblical. This is all fine. There's nothing wrong with it except for one thing. I have a source that I haven't even tapped into. <laughs> now, how many hours is Wilson going to go on with this <laughs> before I simply say, time out, everybody. Hold it. And get on my knees and ask the Lord to help me. <laughs> Sometimes it's a few hours. And I go, oh, yeah, duh. <laughs> and it's just amazing. Uh, how, how this works, but if you just bow before the Lord and ask Him to give you wisdom, it will surprise you sometimes how that wisdom comes. Sometimes it'll come by just slamming a door you thought you wanted to walk through, and He just closes it for you. He takes care of it for you. He gives you wisdom even against your own will. <laughs> but He says He will give it to you when you ask with the right motive, which is to honor and glorify Him. Just this past week, I, I discovered something. Uh, since my son is a Marine captain, I discovered something about Marine captains I didn't know and, and that my son, I think, had forgotten, and that is that Marine captains are technically qualified to adjudicate a court-martial. I didn't know that, uh, and I think my son had forgotten it, but he was appointed to adjudicate a court-martial. And he said, I'm not a lawyer. I've never done this before. I mean, he was obviously irritated, just completely irritated. I don't blame him. So he had this case, you know, with two enlisted Marines. And you can ruin someone's career. You can, you know, uh, and there were, there were no precedents available to him. Uh, he, he was, uh, he's just been transferred into a new battalion, so they hit the new, the new guy with this uh, because he would be objective. They didn't say ignorant. They said objective. <laughs> and uh, so... You know, I, I've had a little experience in church courts and a little experience in civil courts, but not from that side of the bench, but from the other side. Uh, <clears throat> but I have a little experience in church courts, so, you know, we would talk about the proper, uh, you know, uh, uh, rules for evidence and these kinds of things. And uh, finally, I realized it was one person who didn't know anything talking to another person who didn't know anything. I just said, Ben, let's just pray. <laughs> let's just pray. And ultimately, that's, that's the best thing to do. It's not the only thing to do, but it's the best thing to do. And, uh, you know, he got through it fine and felt like the Lord had helped him. But I'm convinced that it's not just when you really don't know what to do, but it's when you think you know what to do that you're even more dangerous. And you need to be sure that, especially when you're operating in your area of expertise, before you get to the place where Job and his friends were, they were exhausted. They had emptied themselves, and they couldn't grasp what the deal was. They would be more inclined to seek, be ready for God to speak to them. But what about you when you're operating every day as best you can in the middle of your competence? And every one of us men, we're trying to, as we get older, we try to focus that career and focus the way we spend our time more and more on the things we're really good at. So that by the time you're 50, you really think you're pretty good at this. <laughs> I mean, you've been focusing your life now for 30 years to get it where you can do what you can do well. And you're pretty convinced you're good at it by the time you're 50. And I just want to say to you, you're really not as good as you think. Because with all your innovation, all your engineering, all your curiosity, all your intelligence, 
You do not have the wisdom that comes from above until you ask Him. You just don't. And you may have the formula right, just like Job's three friends had the formulas right out of Proverbs. But they had no earthly idea how to apply it. And they were not wise men. They do not go down in history as wise men with all the formulas they had learned. And as good engineers, they were able to put it into practice. And they blew it because they didn't know how to approach the Lord. So he's saying to us, it is hidden from everyone else. You must learn to come to the Lord and ask Him for it. Look in verses 23 through 27, and you'll see here's why it is. Here's why it only belongs to God. Here's why it's hidden from everybody else. Because God alone is creator, sustainer, and ruler. He alone views the ends of the earth. He alone established the force of the wind. He alone made a decree for the rain. And then He alone can take wisdom and He can judge wisdom. And He approves it and He confirms it or He denies it. He is the judge of wisdom. He's the source of wisdom. He rules over wisdom. This is a matter of the order of the universe. Who's in charge here? And there's where wisdom comes from. It's knowing who's in charge and knowing where to go to get your directions. God is the creator, sustainer, and ruler of the universe. And that's the reason that we must go to Him. Because as we say, you know, wisdom involves getting up at 30,000 feet. Well, God's not at 30,000 feet. He's at a billion feet or however high it is. He sees everything. He comprehends everything all at the same time in every way, in every relationship of everything in the universe. He comprehends it all, all of it, in every way, all the time. No one could possibly do that. And we have access to Him. That's the amazing thing. If you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have access to this wisdom because in Christ are all the unsearchable wisdoms of the universe. They're all in Christ. And you're given the mind of Christ. And so you have access to the Father you, through Christ to receive this wisdom. It's an amazing, amazing gift. But God is the creator. He has, He's the source of all things. He spoke them into being. He sees all things. He has elevation. He can see everything. You can't. So you need, you need to go to the, you know, just like, it's like in communications, beaming up to the satellite, you know, who can send your message somewhere else that you can't speak to. Well, God is infinitely beyond that. And if you're in touch with Him, then you're in touch with the one who created and sustains and rules over everything. And uh, because He's creator, He is truly the only wise one. We said earlier in our study of wisdom that basically wisdom is choosing the right means to accomplish the best ends. That's a pretty good definition of wisdom. Choosing the right means to accomplish the best ends. But you know, looking at this text, you could also say about wisdom that wisdom is simply seeing things from God's perspective or living life in light of God's perspective. There's wisdom. Because God does always present the right means for the best ends. He is indeed amazingly wise. You know, if I said to you, well, let's use your, let's use your engineering ingenuity on something. What I'd like to do, I'd like for us here in this group to create a, a pump, okay, that pumps liquids. And I'd like for this pump to be able to last about 75 years and during that time, uh, I'd like for it to be able to, 
to pump about two and a half billion cycles uh, with very low, if, if no, maintenance. Uh, I'd like for it to be able to pump about 2,000 gallons a day. I'd like for it to be able to range this, this pump from uh, 0.025 horsepower all the way in a given moment to a, a one horsepower. And I'd like for it to, uh, its valves to be able to operate four to 5,000 times per hour. Now here's the only problem with this pump. It's got, a, it's got to weigh less than 10 and a half ounces. Okay, go to it and design it. <laughs> I go, oh, impossible. Of course, but God did that with your heart. <laughs> That's exactly what he made. Only God can do that. Uh, so you, you, can, you can take a zillion different things like that where God has made things with his own hands and shown us that our mouths are shut. We, we just can't touch it. We can hardly even understand it. You have in your, in your body these cells, and if, if you were to take one cell and blow it up big enough where we could actually see it, make it as big as a city, it, it would be a complex system, almost like a factory. This is just one cell, like a complex factory where messages are being sent and people are walking around the hallways and everything's perfectly timed. and it's, it, it really is like a huge factory. And you have 75 trillion of those in your body. And that's what's so amazing. God made this. He's creator, sustainer, and ruler. Well, don't you think that if we're to get wisdom, we better talk to headquarters. We better talk to the one who made us. And he offers himself to us. Now, thirdly, if you'll notice in, verses, in verse 28, here we get to the key matter. You say, how do I access him? How do I live in light of his presence? Well, here it is. And he said to man. Here now he speaks to us, the God who is alone wise. Now he opens his mouth and speaks, and what does he say? The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. God reveals wisdom to man. And that is the revelation, that the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Now, uh, what's really interesting to me is that in the book of Job, there's only one instance in Job where the name of God, the covenant name of God is used. And it's right here in this verse. The name the Lord, which in Hebrew would be Yahweh, Jehovah. It's the only place in Job. And he's not just saying some generic fear of God however you conceive God in whatever religion you belong to. No, he's saying the fear of, of a specific God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that God, the only God who is. It's the fear of the living God, not the God of your imaginations that your engineering schemes came up with because, you know, we engineer gods too. We've, we've got millions, we've got hundreds of millions of gods that we've engineered. But there's one who was not made by the hands of men. There's one who's the one true living God. And when you find him and you fear him, you now have wisdom. We live in the light of this fear. Well, what is this fear all about? Let's just take a moment and look at the scriptures. Uh, you can leave your finger in Job 28. But let's go over to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and see that when we're teaching our children from the earliest days, this fear is to be taught. This fear that, that connects us to the Lord. These are the, this is Deuteronomy 6 on page 264. These are the commands, decrees, and laws 
The Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess so that you, your children, and your grandchildren, that is their children after them, may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all His decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. So he's saying, look, here's the key to enjoying long life. Here's the key to having the good life. Learn to fear the Lord. Teach your children to fear the Lord. And teach your grandchildren to fear the Lord. Now, is this fear the same as some abject fear of someone who's, who's afraid he's going to be wiped out and destroyed? No, it's the fear of a son whose daddy just got anointed king. Uh, if you ask uh, uh, President Obama's daughters if they respect their daddy less because now he's president and they said no we respect him more they respect their father as president he happens also to be their father so you don't respect god less because he's your father you actually respect him more and you're more thrilled because it's your father who's the king of the universe so we fear we uh, the word is reverence we reverence our father who owns the universe what good does this fear do? Well, turn back a few pages in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20. And you'll see that this fear can be very useful. After God gives the Ten Commandments to Moses, there was thunder and lightning. Verse 18, when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, this is page 130, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. So the fear of God is very useful in keeping us from sinning. What else is the fear of God useful for? Turn over to the New Testament. Look in Ephesians 5. And we come to certain relationships that have order and structure to them, even authority in them, including slaves and masters. That would be work and workplace. You know, it has to do with our boss. Children and parents in chapter 6. Chapter 5, wives and husbands. Wives submit to your husbands and so on. But look at the overarching motive in verse 21, submit to one another. And then following that verse, you get the three relationships that he's talking about where there's submission involved. Submit to one another out of fear of Christ or out of reverence for Christ. Same word, phobeo, fear, from which you'll get phobia. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So all of our submission to authority is not because we're afraid someone's going to hurt us. We submit to the policeman and to the judge and to the boss, not because he can fire us, but out of reverence for Christ, out of fear of Christ. That's, that's where it all comes from. What else does the fear of Christ do for us? Well, look at 1 Peter. This would be on page 2017.
And he says in verse 17, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. So our holiness, not attaching ourselves to the things around us, living as strangers and aliens, is coming out of our reverence for God. We're sanctified, we're set apart, we're consecrated, we're, we're from a different place going to a different place as aliens and strangers here. And what keeps us in that mentality is our reverence for God, our fear of Him in all of His holiness. Turn the page and look in chapter 2 of 1 Peter, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the King. So all of that in our relationships to our neighbor, to those in authority, and to the world around us, we are sustained through our reverence for God. Uh, one, more, one more useful uh, benefit of fear. Turn in to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, verse 11. This would be on page 1878. 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is describing his ministry. And look how he puts it. Now, we know that he is motivated by the love of God because he says in verse 14, For Christ's love compels us. So he's compelled by the love of God. But it's not just the love of God. It's also the fear of God. Look at verse 11. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. You want to know why Paul was such a great evangelist? One reason was he, he feared the Lord. He had learned the fear of the Lord, and then he persuaded men. So it was out of reverence for God that he spoke of God to other men. So when, back to Job 28 now, when, when God says to man, look, the key to life is fearing the Lord. The key to your children's happiness is learning to fear the Lord. He is giving us the secret key to wisdom. So gentlemen, the key to your leading the best marriage you can lead. And I put those I use those words very intentionally. The key to your leading the best marriage you can lead because marriage takes two. But the key to leading the best marriage you can lead is to fear the Lord. It really is. When you think about it, what gets you all tied up in knots about your marriage? is your anger toward your spouse for not meeting your needs in one way or another. All that tends to dissolve when you fear the Lord. You realize He made you, He is your judge, He has redeemed you, and He's coming back to glorify you. And these petty little uh, resentments that you have toward your wife tend to dissolve in the fear of the Lord. When you're at work and you feel as though you've been dealt with unjustly, either by your board of directors or by your partners or by a boss or by a customer, let me tell you what will help you deal with that better than anything else in your life is simply fear the Lord. If you really fear Him, you fear Him because you know He is the judge of all the earth and He's going to bring justice to every aspect of your life one day, and you will see it with your own eyes, as Job said earlier in this text. You will see it, and the fear of the Lord will bring you back down to earth, 
get you off your high horse and enable you to be a servant and not to worry about the petty complaints in life. If you feel as though your pay is not what it ought to be or that your station in life is not commensurate with your dignity, let me give you the solution for this. It's the fear of the Lord. If you think that your life has really been unfair and you've got a grievance against God and you're not about to go in there and pray those prayers in the prayer book or you're not about to sing those hymns or to listen to those sermons or to offer Him worship or to pay a tithe because the way He's treated you, let me give you the bottom line answer. It's the fear of the Lord. And Job had to understand that. He had his own complaint about the way God was dealing with him. And here's a little interlude before he gets to the final climax when he meets the Lord and has his mouth shut. Here's a little warning, Job. Here's the key to what you're looking for. Fear the Lord. Honor Him. Glorify Him. Bow down before Him and acknowledge Him as King. And may it be evident in every aspect of your life. There are several books that Jerry Bridges has written, many good ones about grace and holiness and godliness. Maybe my favorite little one is a book he wrote entitled The Joy of Fearing God. Get that, The Joy of Fearing God. The joy of bringing honor and glory and being awestruck by your Father. There is tremendous joy in it. And that, gentlemen, is where you get wisdom. Because when you fear Him, you turn to Him. And you ask for Him to be honored and glorified in every circumstance. And He will show you, you're, you're His Son. He will show His Son the way to fear the Lord in the midst of every circumstance. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of making Yourself known to us. For You have hidden Yourself in all of your glory from us that we might not be destroyed. And yet in Christ, you have revealed yourself to us in your fullness. And you have shown us the fear of the Lord. We thank you for this one verse tucked in the middle of this magnificent book that gives us the nugget we need today to be men who are wise. Help us to reverence you, to acknowledge your greatness, to be bowed down before you. And Lord, grant us joy in doing so. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Lord bless you.